I'm going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark for a number of weeks, probably. It's one of the things that I really uh, dove into. Spent a lot of mornings on our deck, drank a whole lot of coffee, and went through the book of Mark a number of times. And I was just so blessed the way the Lord revealed new things. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? When we, when we look through it, hi, Anna, how are you? Yeah, I haven't seen you for ages. How God reveals things to you. I won't do that anymore, I promise. But I'm going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark, and one of the things that it struck me as I was reading it uh, over and over was, you know, I sometimes forget that these were just people like us. They were human beings like us. We read their story and we talk about them as characters in the Bible, and we, we forget that they're people. They're human beings. And they think like we think, and they were living in a culture and a time different from ours, but it had their own stresses, their own things that they had to deal with. So this morning I want us to start out by talking a little bit about who just who Mark was. And, you know, you can find some tidbits about Mark when you read through the Gospels. You know, when you just open it up and like, okay, guy, this guy named Mark wrote this. I know he wasn't one of the 12. I wonder who he really was. Maybe some of you thought he was one of the 12. Surprise, he wasn't. He was born in approximately 10 A.D. So he was born about 10 years, give or take, after Jesus was born. So when Jesus was crucified at what we believe to be at the age of 33, he would have been a 23-year-old young man. That's who he was. And he grew up in Jerusalem. We know that because we know he had a mother named Mary. And we know that Mary had a house in Jerusalem. And the reason we know that is so interesting when you start looking through the Gospels. In Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 11, it said this. And this is Peter, Peter talking. And I don't have time to go into all these backgrounds, but Peter had been arrested. And he was in jail. And one night in jail, an angel came, and it sounds like the angel kicked him in the side and says, Get up. Get dressed. We're out of here. And exactly that happened. He got up. The doors opened. He led him out of the jail, out of the prison. All of the friends of Peter, the early church, one of their church body members, their family, was in jail. James, it didn't go so well. He got killed. They're all wondering what's going to happen to Peter. And here's what happens after he walks out the door. It says, Then Peter came to himself and said, Now, I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. His mother's Mary's house had become a gathering point for the early church. And as we look in some other scriptures, we, we see that Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. They were related. In Colossians 4, it says, My fellow uh, prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Then there's a couple of really interesting things that aren't absolutely crystal clear, but the early historians and most theologians think these things are true that I'm going to share with you. And I just think they're really cool. So I hope they're true. 
Remember when Jesus was going to have the last Passover meal? And he told his disciples, you know, obviously they didn't have a place. They didn't have a house. They didn't have a place to go. So he sent a couple of his disciples into Jerusalem and says, you're going to see a man carrying a pitcher of water. And you follow him to the house that he goes to. And then you talk to the owner of the house and just say, where is your guest room that we may take the Passover? Most historians and theologians think that young man carrying the pitcher of water was named Mark and that the house they went to was his mother Mary's. And it makes sense when you look at the way the early church operated. There's another scripture that I've read so many times and it just kind of went right by me. And it has to do with when Jesus was in the garden and they were coming to arrest him. And in Mark's gospel, he writes it this way. In Mark chapter 14, I believe it is, it starts out, Everyone deserted Jesus and fled. But a young man, who shall remain nameless, it doesn't say that, but who shall remain nameless, he was wearing nothing but a linen garment, and he was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled and left his garment behind. It appears that, and the early historians think, that was young Mark. And it's like John wrote in his gospel who referred to himself in the kind of the third person, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, here Mark's saying to the whole world, that naked guy was me. Again, you can't prove it beyond a doubt, but it makes sense the way it's written and what the early church historians believed. Not only was he related to Barnabas as a young man, a number of years had passed, and he actually goes with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, this young man, Mark. And of course, if you know the story, he abandoned Paul and Barnabas along the way, which caused some hard feelings, especially between uh, Paul and Barnabas, but Paul and Mark. He didn't like it much that he abandoned him. It caused a separation, which God used for his glory, because now two teams went out, Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Mark. And Paul's attitude towards Mark changed dramatically by the end of their life together. number of scriptures in Philemon, verse 23, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark and Demas and Luke. Mark is his friend his fellow worker. And in 2 Timothy, it says, only Luke is with me, but go get Mark and bring him with you because he is so helpful to my ministry. Mark led an exciting life at a very, very difficult time in the church. It appears pretty clear in Scripture that he was mentored by somebody who was probably pretty good named Peter. Peter, as a matter of fact, many people think a lot of what Mark wrote, he was writing as Peter was talking to him and telling him what was going on. Matter of fact, Peter refers to Mark in 1 Peter chapter 5 as his son, his spiritual son. Yeah, what a privilege. What an interesting life. And then Mark ultimately is chosen by God to write one of the four Gospels that we have. And his gospel, as you read it and go through it, you're going to discover, if you read all four of them, 
His is a little bit different. This is a little bit different. Actually, it's quite a bit different. He writes in such a way that you can tell that his audience was probably different than Matthew's and Luke's and John. He was writing it to a different group of people. His target audience, it appears, was the Roman Christians, and in particular, Gentile Christians. Now think about that for a second. If you are writing a, a book, Matthew, John, or Luke, and your primary audience is the Jewish people, you're going to write it in such a way that it really connects, clicks with the Jewish mindset. Things like his genealogy is all laid out. You and I might read that and go, so what? Well, so would the Gentiles of that day. His, the birth of Jesus isn't even mentioned. The Virgin Mary all that, doesn't even get mentioned. It wouldn't have made a bit of difference to a Gentile in Rome. But if you were a Jew and you read the genealogy, you would have clicked. The prophecies are being fulfilled. The Virgin Mary, the virgin birth, prophecies being fulfilled. All of these things would have made much more sense. So when you read through Mark, and being we're kind of, we're Gentiles, in a way maybe still are, maybe it ministers to us much better because what he focuses on Mark is a supernatural Jesus. Supernatural Jesus. Superpower Jesus. I mean, he to make the Marvel comic characters look ridiculous. He's so good. And this is what... Mark focuses on. It's as if he uses miracles and the things that Jesus did to prove his divinity to the Gentile world. And if you go through it, and and some of us could say, gee, he kind of left out some things that Matthew and and, uh, Luke and John talked about, and the answer is, yeah, he did. If you go through it, you won't see any of these long preachings or teachings of Jesus even. The Sermon on the Mount, you would never know there was a Sermon on the Mount if you read the Gospel of Mark. But it's like an action movie. He uses the word immediately almost 40 times. In the Bible, it's like scene one. Immediately, scene two. Immediately, Jesus raises the dead. Immediately, He heals the leper. Immediately, He gives sight to the blind. Immediately, all through the book. I mean, this guy was focused on the excitement. More so than the teaching. Now, don't get me wrong. How do you not pay attention to the teaching? But he was writing to an audience that needed to be impressed and their attention gathered. And he was doing it by saying, this man, Jesus, is supernatural. He's not a normal man. He's superhuman. He's God's son. The Gospel of Mark doesn't ignore Jesus' teachings, obviously. What he does instead is just gives brief excerpts of it, if you would. Major teachings. Um, I'd call it the Reader's Digest version, but they weren't even necessarily that long. He just gave the powerful point, and then here's what Jesus did. Another powerful point or a parable, and here's what Jesus did. So as you read it, I I want to give you that background. First of all, Mark is just a human being like us going through a lot of stressors. I mean, can you imagine you were traveling on a mission trip with Paul and Barnabas, and you said, hey, Paul, I think I want to go home. Whew. That would take some courage. 
Paul still had a reputation even after a number of years. And the things he was involved with in the early church, if he was the one in the garden when Jesus was arrested. So many things. Getting to to be a witness of some sort to the last Passover meal. Amazing stuff. And he writes this gospel for us. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, which is a very good place to start. And it says this, starting in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I'm going to try to stay on track because I know I got way too much. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to see him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Just a brief thing on John. John the Baptist. John was a relative of Jesus. His birth was a miracle birth. His birth was prophesied by by an angel. You may still know the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. He was set aside in the womb for his ministry, his calling, his purpose. And he fulfilled his purpose until they cut his head off. But he never backed down. And he went in the desert and he was wearing these very uncomfortable, very practical clothes. And he was preaching this message. And if you notice, it talks about the Jews coming out. The Jews were coming out. And they were confessing their sin. Let me tell you, Jews would not confess their sin. They were God's chosen people, for goodness sakes. They might do some sacrifices at the temple and, re- and do all of the religious things they were supposed to do. But for a Jew to stand in a public place and confess sin, uh-uh. But they did it. And then they were baptized. And they wouldn't have done that either. We're not sure of the history of it, but there is evidence that when Gentiles would convert to Judaism, there was a baptism that took place, and it was by submersion and all of that. We know historically there was a lot of washing that was in the temples and in their, in their worship, kind of for the cleanliness, the purity of all of that stuff. But he has come with a message. And what's his message? Most of us would say his primary message was repent. It's not the primary message. The primary message, the kingdom of God is coming. The one who I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals is coming. In other words, the Messiah is coming. Therefore, repent and prepare the way of the Lord. 
repentance and then be baptized. John was quite a character. And we sometimes can almost laugh at John, this crazy man. How many of you see him with really wild hair out in the wilderness, looking ridiculous, throwing grasshoppers in his mouth? You know, Jesus had something to say about him. Do you remember that? Here's what Jesus had to say about this crazy guy in Matthew 11, 11. I tell you the truth. Among those that have been born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Isn't that amazing? What made him so great? He was a relative, so he got a little bit of extra favor from Jesus. I don't think so. He had a calling on his life. He fulfilled his calling, his purpose. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what happened to him. He knew how faithful he was. I don't know what in Jesus' mind made him the greatest person ever born of a woman, but that was what Jesus thought of him in the desert. And the preparing the way is kind of a word picture in the Jewish culture. In ancient Far East, when monarchs would travel, what they would do is they would travel, but first they would send out servants to prepare the way, to remove any obstacles that would be in the way of them traveling safely. Level out the ground. Remove the boulders that are in the way. Prepare the way because the monarch, the king, is coming. If we miss that word picture, you can almost miss how that is a good picture for us with the human heart. The way has to be prepared for us to receive Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. We sometimes underestimate, I think, the importance of the preparation, the preparing. I tell you this so we can maybe be encouraged even with our sharing the good news of the gospel with people who seem to reject it. Maybe just consider yourself an ambassador of the Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you're preparing the way for him to enter into a human heart sometime. We just don't know when. But John the Baptist, that was his message. There's a Messiah coming. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It was a kind of a twofold message that he had. But primarily his mission, I'm supposed to prepare the way for the Lord more so than calling people to repent. He didn't come to deal with people's sin. He came to deal with people to prepare their hearts for the Messiah. And it's interesting, as I said, these Jewish people, first of all, would not confess publicly. They wouldn't be thinking this, this whole baptism thing is for them. If history is true and it, when you change from a Gentile to a, a Jew, you had to go through this whole process and be baptized in submersion, for them to think that they needed to be baptized after repenting publicly would be for a Jew to say, geez, we're really no better than the Gentiles? Wait a minute, we're way better than the Gentiles. We're God's chosen people. But that's what they were doing. And notice they were coming from every direction. Even the religious leaders were coming to see John. Their baptism was to identify with the coming Messiah and the expectation of the coming Messiah. You know, the title of my message, I hope you caused you at least to think. It's it's something like it's time to publicly identify. Nowadays, boy, does that stir up a bunch of goofy thoughts, huh? 
Jesus came out. He came out as what? The Son of God. Think about when, when He came up out of that water. I love the way the translation reads. I think it was the NIV that said, heaven was torn open. It was ripped open. It wasn't just like a cloud came or the sun came out. Heaven was torn open. It was rent open, just like the veil was rent from top to bottom. And here comes something like a dove. It makes it sound like it was a dove. In, In one of the Gospels, it also adds the words, and it remained on Him. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. And then the Father speaks. When he spoke those words from heaven, this is my beloved son. I mean, it doesn't get a whole lot clearer than that, does it? A public thing. Jewish people all around him. Sounds like there were probably religious leaders that had come out into the desert. And heaven speaks. God the Father speaks. This is my son. And he's perfect in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus was ready after a little detour to the desert for 40 days to start his ministry. Jesus was baptized. Now, if we don't think about baptism, if we get locked into a certain way of thinking that, gee, John's baptism was for repentance. No, Jesus didn't need to get baptized. He didn't need to repent of anything. But his baptism, again, was a baptism, I believe, of a form of identification. Identification with with a couple of things. One, he identified with human people. He hung on the cross. He identified with humanity. A picture of him identifying with people. And also being identified as the Son of God. So I believe we see in baptism when the people that came to John, they were getting baptized after confessing sin. Then they were baptized. And it was to identify that they were believing that the Messiah, the kingdom of God, is coming. Jesus identified as the Son of God and identified with mankind. Seems to be some identification that takes place with baptism. So when we look at baptism, which we're going to be doing next week, I want to answer four questions quite quickly, and I'm going to skip a lot of Scripture. But what is baptism? Who should be baptized? How should we be baptized? And why should we be baptized? Let's start, first of all, with what is baptism. We are not saved by baptism. The people that came to John, they didn't get their sins forgiven because they got baptized. They confessed their sins and then they could get baptized. We need to remember that first and foremost. Salvation is by faith alone. It's because of what Christ did. It's because of his shed blood. It's death, burial, and resurrection. It's the atonement. That's how we get saved has nothing to do with baptism in terms of salvation. Unless you would say 
Because I have been saved by the blood of Jesus, I will therefore get baptized. And that's why we refer to it as believer's baptism. We don't baptize children, infants. Next week, we're going to dedicate some children to the Lord. And I believe we will cover biblical reasons for doing that. And then we're going to have a baptism. Why would we baptize somebody? Why would an adult get baptized, for goodness sakes? Because they got saved. And they want to identify with something unbelievably important. Baptism is a figure or a type of identifying with Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. We stand in the waters of baptism. We stand in the lake. We stand in a river. We stand in a, in a tank. Wherever we stand, as we stand there, we're identifying with the death of Christ being hung on a cross. We go under the water. We are identifying with his burial in the tomb. And we come up out of the water and we identify with his resurrection. The scripture is clear. Bob shared this in the video this last week. If you watch it, if you didn't watch it, you should. If you did, you heard him read from Romans, where we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We become a new creation in Christ symbolically through with that baptism. We're in the new creation in Christ the moment we got saved. But now we are publicly demonstrating and identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's in Romans 6 if you... Well, let's, let's go ahead. I think I made a slide. So let's go ahead and look at Romans 6 quick. Bob shared this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been baptized with him, through, buried with him through baptism into death. In the order as Christ was raised from the, the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. It is an outward testimony of an inward work when we get publicly baptized. Too many scriptures. Who should be baptized? Every believer should be baptized. Every believer should be baptized. Once we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we should be baptized. Every believer. We can go through so many scriptures that show that they believed before they were baptized. After Peter's first sermon, they believed, got baptized. Um, One of my favorites is when Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. He comes across the Ethiopian eunuch sitting in his chariot reading the word, and he's going, geez, I don't get this. And Philip walks down and says, you need some help? Yes. Oh, yeah, I forget. Sorry. I need some help. I need some help. And he tells him what the Bible is saying, what he's reading is, it means, and, and he looks at him and says, what must I do to be baptized? How clear does it get? Philip says, believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Believer's baptism. We need to be baptized if we're a believer. A lot of us maybe would say things like, well, I know I was baptized by my parents when I was a child. Is that good enough? 
I would say I don't think there's a thing wrong with your parents baptizing you as a child unless you believe that that got you saved. Then there's a problem. And you weren't a believer. Get saved. You got saved since then. Get baptized. Get baptized. How should we do it? We believe the biblical pattern is by immersion. Now, if I was with you somewhere and we didn't have any lake around or water around, all I had was my bottle of water, that would suffice. But I don't believe it's the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern seems to be immersion. Jesus went into the water. The people that John the Baptist baptized went down into the water. The Ethiopian eunuch got off his chariot and went down into the water. When Jesus was through being baptized, he says he came up out of the water. And there's other scriptures that we could look at that demonstrate immersion seems to be the best way. And it for sure seems to be the best way to identify with the death standing in the water, the burial going under the water, and the resurrection coming up out of the water. It clearly gives such a wonderful picture of dedication. Publicly announcing. So why do it? If there's anybody in here that's not been baptized since becoming a believer, I want to encourage you, let us know and get baptized next Sunday. Get baptized. Why? Well, first and foremost, Jesus says to do it. Okay, is, is that, if that, I'll, I'll give you another reason, but that should be good enough right there. I want to do it as an act of obedience. That's why I want to get baptized. But also, it's clear that there is an identification publicly. Those Jewish people that listened to that crazy John in the wilderness and walked down into that river to be baptized, man, alive, that was weird to any Jewish person watching. Why would you do that? But they did it anyway to be identified with the coming Messiah. Jesus certainly didn't need to be baptized because he was a sinless human being. But he did need to be baptized to fulfill the will of the Father and obedience. And he identified with that obedience and the Father's will as also as well as identifying with us as human beings. For us, it's going and making a public demonstration, a public announcement that I am identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am publicly acknowledging that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I bet those Jews took some ridicule. I don't think Jesus had to take any. But some of us might. Why would you do that? It's not to, to hurt anybody's feelings, especially our parents who maybe baptized us as infants. It's, it's not to, to make a show that's something prideful. It is an act of humility and obedience to the Lord. So I want to encourage any and all of us that have not been baptized. We'll baptize until the hamburgers or hot dogs are overcooked. But I want to encourage you seriously. Let us know that if you desire to be baptized. And if you desire to be baptized, what we have you do out here, you'll step in a a tank of water and we'll ask you to share just 
a minute or something or less, sometimes more, of your conversion, a little tiny bit of your testimony. doesn't have to be much. But there's power in your testimony. There's power in it. So we're going to be spending some time in the Gospel of Mark. I hope that it's at least stimulated your interest and you'll go and read the Gospel of Mark. One of the things when everybody comes to me and says, what has the Lord showed you and you're three months away? Don't I look like Moses coming off the mountain? (laughs) Not quite, right? (laughs) But one of the things was the Word of God. The Word. If you don't have the Word in you, you will not stand when true tribulation comes. The Word of God. You want to walk in power that the Holy Spirit indwells on us, gives us? Notice, when Jesus moved, He moved by speaking the Word. We need to know the Word. And we are too lazy to read the Word. I don't have time. Shoot, you'll watch a movie that lasts three hours, a football game that lasts 18 hours. I watch golf for 10 hours. You know how sick I am? I even listen to it on the radio. My point is the Word of God. It is a living entity. And not only is it a living entity, the Bible is clear. It's what brings you peace. It's what gives you hope. It's what sets you free. And I could go on and on and on. And every time Jesus did a miracle, guess what? He spoke. And Jesus is the living Word. Okay, that's a mini-sermon, sorry. But let's close in prayer. And the worship team, why don't you come on up? I think we will go a few minutes extra and sing one more song. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness and love towards us. I pray, Father, as we continue to look into your word and respond to your Holy Spirit, that it builds faith in us that can remove mountains builds faith in us that helps us to resist the enemy. Father, we need to be a desperate people, and we need to be desperate for your word. Father, your word transforms us. So many of us wear ourselves out trying to become a different or better person. But what you want us to become is the image of Christ. So, Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would submit to your Holy Spirit's promptings, that you would give us a hunger that we can't satisfy for the Word of God, and that we truly would become ambassadors for Jesus that reveal Jesus to the world.